This podcast is proud to be part of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberry with no E's dot com. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Transpersonal Radio with Angela Lynn Gibson. Remember, your thoughts upload your reality. Think wisely and always prepare to ignite. Welcome. Welcome to Transpersonal Radio. Transpersonalradio.com. Real talk for real life. Inspiring podcasts. Exploring personal empowerment. empowerment. And transformation. Through parapsychology, spirituality, and how your thoughts upload your reality. And now your host, Angela. Angela L. Gibson. First of all, thank you for listening. And a big thank you to my loyal listeners who have stayed with me throughout the years. Welcome to all you new listeners. I've been producing Transpersonal Radio since 2010. Not without challenges, for sure. But I'm proud that I'm in the sixth year of Transpersonal Radio and it continues to get better every year. I'm going to ask my listeners to do me a favor. If you find value in this podcast, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or download the iPhone app or Android app. And please, share this radio show with anyone you think may find it helpful, thought-provoking, or interesting. Also, please leave a great review for me on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker, as that will help the reputation of the show and get it recognized by a wider audience. There's a lot of work that goes into creating and producing a podcast and radio show. Here's the thing, folks. Over the years, I've had some really amazing guests on this show who speak from their core, who get real, who speak from a place of authenticity and integrity. These guests bring their A-game, providing you with quality content that can really make your life better. So by telling everyone you know about Transpersonal Radio and getting the word out, these guests really can make the world a better place. Thanks again for listening. Hello, Transpersonal Radio listeners. Tonight, we are going to delve into the more scientific side of the paranormal. As you know by now, I prefer to ground the woo-woo in science and separate wishful fantasy from evidentiary substance. I'm really excited about tonight's guest, Marty Rosenblatt, because his life's work is bridging physics and applied precognition. Marty earned an MS in physics from the University of California, Los Angeles, and he is the co-founder of the Applied Precognition Project. He is also the president of Physics Intuition Application, and Marty is one of the original co-founders of the Applied Precognition Project, along with Chris Georges and Tom Atwater. He is a current board member and COO of the Applied Precognition Project, also known as APP. He is also the group manager for several APP precognition groups. Marty is both an associative remote viewer and analyst and judge applying the winning entanglements protocol. Marty is also president of Physics Intuition Applications, which he founded in 1998 to apply remote viewing to predicting stock market and sporting event outcomes. He writes the online magazine Connections Through Time, and he teaches financial and sports precognitive application workshops. Applied Precognition Project's mission is to publicly explore, research, and apply logic and intuition to predict future event outcomes, enabling participants to evolve personally, while contributing to the elevation of global consciousness. 
The main focus of APP is applying precognition to financial markets and sporting outcomes, consciousness and spirit, remote viewing, integrating physics and intuition for an ultimate consciousness paradigm shift. And wow, that is a lot we are going to be getting into tonight. Marty, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. I want to welcome you. I'm so excited to have you and delve into tonight's topic of applied precognition. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Marty, before we dive in, because this is uh, going to get really deep here, let's go over a few definitions for our listeners. So we're going to be talking about remote viewing, precognition, applied precognition, and psychic abilities. So Marty, I'm going to ask you to give our listeners your definition of each of those and how they interact so we can kind of set a foundation for our discussion this evening. Okay. Um, Well, precognition is really gathering information from the future in ways which would not be accepted by society is the way I would put it. Because I believe people do this actually subconsciously all the time. Most people have had experiences which are precognitive, the standard of knowing somebody who's on the phone or deja vus, um, where you're just gathering information from the future. Now, that's kind of a biggie. Remote viewing is the ability to gather information from a distance in physical space or time, past, present, and future. So um, remote viewing includes precognition, but also it's used to gather information. Say um, there was a really good one where um, Ingo Swan, one of the original remote viewers, got information about um, Jupiter and saw that there were rings around Jupiter before actually our satellite, uh, our um, Voyager mission got there. Wow. So, yeah, right. We're talking large distances. In fact, there seems to be no limit um, to what the remote viewers can see in space or time. So that's remote viewing, precognition, was there... Uh, Psychic abilities, yeah. Yeah, psychic abilities are, (laughs) you know, I mean, I can't speak to all of them, but the ones like clairvoyance, telepathy, most people, precognition, um, um, that term psychic, for me means that you're able to pick up information through your personal subconscious that is somehow out there. Um, I like to think of it as being out there outside of space and time in kind of a universe of collective consciousness. In fact, if you give me a moment, let me get your to focus on what consciousness is. Mm-hmm. We, we really only experience consciousness in the moment. Every one of us are conscious beings in the moment. That's when we make our choices, exercise our free will. But imagine if every one of these conscious experiences were stored in a place outside of space and time. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you're going to have an experience 24 hours from now Okay, it's going to be as real as this one is now, 
but that's stored out there already. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about this, it, it reminds me, it, it likens to a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst uh, Carl Jung when he talks about the collective unconscious and being able to tap into this data soup, if you will. Now, is it, so this is similar to what you're speaking of. Very similar. I have a friend who is a Jungian um, a psychoanalyst, and we've talked about this, and they use different words. But after many lunches and disagreements, we <laughs> actually came to the conclusion that we're really just using different words for the same thing. Outstanding. Jung got it. <laughs> That's fascinating. I love that. So now explain to us, Marty, what is the difference between remote viewing and associative remote viewing? Okay, remote viewing is this general ability where you're told to um, describe and sketch some hidden target and um, um, the remote viewer will in fact do that and uh, most often if it's good remote viewing, eventually there'll be some sort of feedback that'll come back around that target. But it has nothing to do with, say, wagering. The idea of associative remote viewing is to be able to select the actual outcome when multiple outcomes are possible. I'm now focused on binary associative remote viewing. We've fooled around with horse races where there are multiple horses and even lotteries, but ultimately we came to binary. So let me just talk a little bit about binary. Let's say we're working in um, financial markets where I want to know whether or not tomorrow the Standard & Poor 500, Dow Jones, something like that, is going to go up or down. Um, Usually we do a certain percentage, but let's just say up or down. Binary choice, okay, from the opening, say, to the close. Now, how would you do that using remote viewing? Well, here's what you do. You associate one, we call it a photo site. It's a picture, but the reason it's a photo site is remote viewers love to go to a physical site mm-hmm. and describe the sounds, the smells, the tastes. It's a lot more than just looking at a picture. Mm-hmm. So that's why we call it a photo site. Sometimes I might say photo, but the idea is the photo is transference to the site when the picture was taken. So let's say I have for up, I use um, a whale jumping out of water. So that's the picture. For the down, I have the Eiffel Tower. Two really very different pictures. The tasking for the remote viewer, normal remote viewing um, kind of tasking is describe and sketch the target photo site that you will see tomorrow. And let's say that person tells me, "Mm, it's a structure, it's hard, it looks a little bit triangular, Um, um, you know, it's stationary, gives me words which make it pretty clear that as a judge, I'm seeing his transcript before the event, totally blind to him, it's pretty clear to me that's like the Eiffel Tower. So I now know that the only way he's going to see that is if the market indeed goes down in this example. So I would be able then to make a wager on the stock market um, 
I like to think of it as an investment because these guys get good at this um, in the down direction. And then the market does its thing and it, assuming it goes down, he would see the Eiffel Tower. You always see what actually happened. When they're wrong, if the market went up, he would see the picture of the uh, whale jumping out of the water. Wow. And so the word, yeah, it is actually a wow. The word association now means we're associating this picture, each of the two pictures, with one of the possible outcomes. And the viewer then describes what he sees in the future, which allows me to make this wager slash investment. Okay, so that's fascinating, uh, Marty. Because we're and we're going to get into this a little bit later, but because you're you're talking about the stock market right now, I want to ask you about the crash that we had in 2008. So the implosion of the stock market, the implosion of the financial industry, of course, the subprime uh, lending uh, following the mortgage crash. So were any of the people in your group able to zero in on, on that and have a predictive uh, foresight about that possibility? Or was that so far out of, quote unquote, an expected norm that no one was really paying attention? Well, you've asked a really good question. and It's really important to understand this. Remote viewers can only go after the questions that are asked. Uh. Okay. We so we and notice a question like that is so vague. You would have to ask, okay, when is there going to be the next major crash? Mm -hmm. And people would have to do a timeline study, which is rather difficult. Mm -hmm. We've really decided, and this is after trying lots of other things, we've really decided that we like to do short term predictions um, because a you always get feedback in the short term, which allows you to gather a lot of data about your viewers. And it allows your viewers to keep learning from their feedback. When they see that picture and then they have the transcript that they did the day before and they look at those two, they learn a lot, whether it's a hit or a miss. The kind of question you're asking, which I actually do hope we can get to someday is kind of too vague um, and more difficult, at least that I, I feel we're ready to take on. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, now I'm looking at an overall uh, synopsis of the event, post event. So I'm able to look at that in hindsight. However, I'm, I guess what I'm asking you is if you were to take on a project like that, of course, you would really hone in on different phases and different – for example, let's look at uh, – you know, again, we talk about the banks being too big to fail and now the banks are bigger than ever. We haven't learned anything, it seems. So taking on that project of saying, okay, so let's look at is there going to be another crash? What will that look like? When will that be? What are all the elements involved? What are all the – you know – those everything you asked there could be put into a tasking which would be blind so um joe mcmonicle takes on tasks like this joe's one of the best remote viewers around mm -hmm. but he's always blind that might be one question in 50 envelopes and he does almost a, a viewing a day at minimum sometimes he does more than one a day you know practice 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 mm -hmm. keeps you keeps you alive so you could put that in an envelope to a, a remote viewer and it would be very interesting to see what joe would come up with mm -hmm. um 
And in there, if you asked him to give me a timeline on when you thought the next big uh, banking failure would be or the market crash, he has techniques where he can estimate that. But one thing which is also important to understand, and Joe will be one of the first to tell you this, um, no viewer, including him, is 100% uh, 100% accurate. And so using this information needs to be done sort of carefully. Um, Absolutely. And one of the reasons we like to do ARV on a – Pretty much, you know, we have lots of groups and we're doing this virtually every day in one group or another is because you get a lot of feedback and all you really want to do is go well over chance Mm -hmm, because then you can be successful. Outstanding. I want to read a quote from C.S. Graham's website and uh, then get a little bit of feedback from you. On his website, uh, the United States government's involvement in remote viewing is real. At one time or another, the Army, the Navy, the CIA, NASA, and the NSA have all funded remote viewing projects. As Major General Ed Thompson, Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence from 1977 to 1981, once said, I never liked to get into debates with skeptics because if you didn't believe that remote viewing was real, you hadn't done your homework. Now, tonight we're going to be addressing skeptics and believers, and we may even reach some debunkers Maybe. Now, Marty, I'm sure you've run into plenty of those in your work. How do you answer skeptics? How do you answer the people who say, you know, oh, that that's just not real. It's, I don't believe in any of that. That's a, a very difficult to um, change anybody's mind. But who's really a skeptic and just doesn't see how it's possible. I will say that I actually repeat something like you said at the beginning. All of that is absolutely true. The fact that the government funded this Mm -hmm. for 20 years is awful good. And this is after having very high level and skeptical scientists look at the data Mm -hmm. and um, never, never really ever got refuted. In fact, the government is clearly, um, well, certainly at one time, clearly knew how good all of this was. There were many successful projects. They got out of it officially in like 1995. Mm -hmm. I personally still hope that they're doing something with it. Absolutely. But now for the raw skeptic, it turns out the best thing to do with them is to sit them down get them quiet, and have them do some remote viewing. That was what Russell Targ and Hal Pudoff used to do with their CIA skeptics that came in. They would simply say, okay, yeah, we can show you the data and all that, but why don't you give it a try? (laughs) And um, very often they would be quite successful. Fascinating. Now, the world superpowers have had several remote viewing programs, as we've been discussing, in particular as a result of the Cold War and the subsequent aftermath. And in fact, one of the most popular, of course, is Project Stargate, which was a direct answer to the Soviet Union's immense investment in psychic research. I'm so excited because today you're still working with Joseph McMonagall, and he was remote viewer number 001 in the U.S. Army's Stargate program, which was a top-secret remote viewing program active during the 1970s in order to obtain an edge in national security. And 
I know you know what Stargate Project is, but for those listeners out there who aren't sure and, and they've never heard of this before, it was the code name for a U.S. Army unit established in 1978 at Fort Meade in Maryland. And uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency and SRI International, which was a California contractor, uh, were uh, implementing this project to investigate the potential for psychic phenomena and its applications for the military. So... As you mentioned, uh, the Stargate program came to an end in the mid-90s after it was turned over to the CIA per, per Congress, and it was supposedly subsequently dismantled because the CIA determined the program was not providing any useful results. But we know now, many decades later, that's not true, and... Again, I'm so excited to know that you're working with Joseph McMonigal even today. And the other question, one of the questions I have for you is, now you founded Physics Intuition Applications in 1998. That's just about three years after the CIA allegedly dismantled Stargate. Now, were you even aware of that whole project at the time, or was that still not public knowledge? Did it influence you in any way? How did that come about? Okay, I um, actually met Hal Pudoff and Russ Targ at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, back in about 1976. Um, I, at that time, was working as a contractor and had connections with the Defense Intelligence Agency. SRI, Pudoff and Targ, published a really seminal paper that described remote viewing, unclassified paper. Um, they actually had written a book, Mind Race. So SRI was doing unclassified work. Um, I went to my DNA, DIA contacts and said, um, hey, you guys need to know about this. Turned out only later that I find out that they were partially funding it and certainly <laughs> following it. So that was funny. But they sent me out to meet these guys. So I met Pudoff and Targ, talked about their work with them. It, it was just fantastic. Yeah, it was the first yeah. truly deep scientific project that literally proved that odds against chance of a million to one that remote viewing was in fact real and they had to invent that word they couldn't use the word psychic phenomenon you can imagine what would go on in the government <laughs> exactly you're laughing and they had something called the giggle factor which was one of their biggest things they had a fight the giggle factor but back in those days um in that paper that came out in 76 actually i think it was they um talked about precognition and that paper was in the IEEE, a very electrical engineering, very standard sort of conventional journal. Um, and they got a lot of flack for publishing it and especially talking about precognition. You can't get information from the future was the, the standard, you know, approach then. It still is among sure. most scientists. Sure. Okay. But since then, what you're calling – Project Stargate actually had lots of different names until it sort of settled into Stargate, had a lot of different government owners. Most of it was very secret. Now, I knew there was stuff going on, but I was never privy to any of the secret work that went on, and I'm still not. 
I am privy to it after it all became unclassified. And there's enormous amounts of information that became unclassified. My personal belief is that when the government got out of it officially, it had become almost too much trouble. There were a lot of people in the government that were saying things like, this is impossible. Um, um, Joe talks about someone who said, even if it were true, I wouldn't want to believe it because it's the work of the devil. You know, there was dear. a lot of oh, negativity yeah. around at high government levels. Mm -hmm. And so the government really had to get out of it uh, officially. Okay. Well, and that makes sense. We still struggle with a lot of the same paradigms even today, decades later, sadly. Uh, now, are you using, in your programs, are you using the same techniques that remote viewers utilize as part of the various Stargate programs? Or have you now learned a lot more and have improved upon those techniques? How are they the same? How are they different? Yeah, a uh, very good question. Those techniques, if you will, actually were formally trained to some of the military people called coordinate remote viewing, CRV. But different agencies, there was also um, special forces got involved, and they had somewhat different approaches. Um, also, afterwards, uh, other people based on CRV have modified it. And so remote viewing now has different flavors, if you will. But you have to realize that, uh, that ultimately they really all will say they're different techniques of getting information from your deep subconscious. They all recognize the information is not coming from your intellect. It's coming from something deeper Again, maybe outside of space and time. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I actually call it the universe of collective consciousness. Not quite Young's term. Mm -hmm. But there's a place where all this information seems to reside. And so I would say um, really there haven't been any major breakthroughs. We've never found and we have people from many of the different remote viewing traditions, probably all of them working in this associative remote viewing approach and we don't see any dramatic difference it depends on the person not the specific protocol in my opinion that's something which i believe i've learned also there's some people who come to us who have never really been formally trained and you get them to believe that they can go into their subconscious and get information and guess what they do well um now, there was a scientific study by Dr. Bruce Grayson entitled Increase in Psychic Phenomena Following Near-Death Experiences, and it was published in the Journal of Near-Death Studies. Through this study, Dr. Grayson was able to show significant psi-related experiences post-NDE that were statistically beyond just pure chance, which, as you mentioned earlier, this is what we're going for. We want that p-value to be above the 50-50 flip of a coin. And mm -hmm. in this study, uh, they revealed that the most prominent areas of increased psi phenomena after NDE included ESP or extrasensory perception experiences, including telepathy, clairvoyance, clairaudience, and precognition. Now, have you found that many of the people in your program have had near-death experiences? I wouldn't say many. I know 
some, certainly actually Joe McMonagle has, and I know of a few others who have had very serious issues um, with it. However, I will just say that that study um, it just sounds right on because once you get to the point where you kind of understand that you're more than your physical body, that there's something deep, spirit, which is non-physical, it makes sense that you would now be much more open to receiving information from this non-physical part of you, the spirit part of you. And I think you just hit on a key point uh, beautifully, Marty, which is when you have a near-death experience or you have some kind of event similar to that, it does all of a sudden awaken you to this concept of something else out there. And that in and of itself opens you to this to the possibility, whereas before many people are just closed or they don't even think about it. Uh, boy, is that ever right on. And I'll tell you, while you know one of our focuses is on wagering, and that's because I think – uh, one of my big interests is trying to educate society about the universe we live in, which is so much grander and more wonderful than, than most people really realize. Um, and money talks. Science has done its job. But if we can get enough people out there who are earning a living at this, I think that will make more of an impact on society than science has. Okay. But having said that, I would say maybe 30% or even more of the people who we work with have no interest in doing the wagering. They do it so they can have this connection with their non-physical part. It's just a deepening process, and they love that. Wow. So, and I, I love that. It's wonderful. Listen, I have to tell you, when I'm looking at the history of the different programs for remote viewing, it's it's a little ugly, right? Because they were looking at it from how can we weaponize this? And it's wonderful that we have groups today, that we have projects today, that we have entire organizations today who say, what can we do to raise global consciousness using this tool? So how do we better our lives instead of how do we destroy? Uh, Right on, right on. And when you start getting into this way, this kind of idea that you indeed can get in touch with this deep, deep part of yourself, it includes things like health. Mm. I think you do feel wiser. And indeed, you can get wealthier in the deepest sense of the word wealth, which is much more than just money. It's kind of sharing the wealth and feeling really good. And um, the word wheel actually is where wealth comes from, and it includes sharing with community. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into this deep place it, it gets you to this really feeling that we're all connected. Um, you know, you're getting information from places that are so different than you are normally trained to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're now going so deep that you're, in fact, touching spiritual ideas directly. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. I'd like to read an excerpt from Tim Raffet's book, Remote Viewing, and then have you comment. Now, okay. this is on the section of biophysics. And he says, in the past 10 years, now for reference, this, is, this book was published in 2001, so 10 years from 10, 2001. In the past 10 years, advances in developmental cell biology have enabled the author to link developmental biology with physics. 
to enable the science of biophysics to include psi. This science can now explain how remote viewing works. Remote viewing uses biophysical fields to enable perception to occur outside the physical body by means of a sixth sense. This sixth sense is a biophysical awareness that is the basis of our out-of-body experiences, reincarnation, clairvoyance, or remote viewing, ESP, and telepathy. What do you think about that? I, I, I love it. He was still a little bit too vague. Biophysical, though, um, you know, is, is a great term. Let me say I love it. I believe it. If you'll give me a moment, I'd like to go even deeper. Yes, because, please. You know, as a as a physicist, um, I couldn't help but try to quote figure this out. And um, it is biophysical, but I want to tell you how I think the biology connects up with something different, which is this concept of vacuum energy or zero point energy. Now, I don't, you know, let's not get too technical about this, but it comes from quantum mechanics, which has within it something called the uncertainty principle, which basically says, um, at least one implication is that if you were to go out where you think there's nothing between galaxies and there's nothing out there, well, that's not true. You cannot get nothing. That's one of the consequences of the uncertainty principle. If there was zero change, that's not possible. Well, it turns out, and this is not debated by um, physicists, scientists anymore, in a place where you think there's nothing, there's an enormous amount of base energy, which is very, very high. At the level of what's involved in, say, a nuclear explosion, at the very hottest part of the nuclear explosion, there's an enormous amount of energy. That's the base energy associated with this zero point energy or vacuum energy now think about that little changes little fluctuations in there are going on not only where you'd think there's nothing that zero point energy is the very very small part of every cell in your body if you go to any one of your cells right and you've got billions or trillion cell in your body and let's say you go through your dna which is, which is vibrating in every cell at a r roughly the same frequency, well, inside that DNA, deep, deep down, when you get down to what you might think of as a point, very, very, very small, quantum mechanically small, zero-point energy is there. That zero-point energy field, and he used that word because mm -hmm. it is a field, mm -hmm. that field is what's feeding your biology. It feeds the physical world. And I have a hypothesis that this zero-point energy field, which is everywhere, everywhere in the universe, when you get down small enough, you can find these fluctuations going on. It's that that is the interface between the physical world and the non-physical world. Wow. That is intense. That is incredible. <laughs> Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the difference between remote viewing and an out-of-body experience. Now, I know there are some obvious distinctions. However, for some people, there might be a little bit of overlap, meaning this, that sometimes a person can remote view by having an out-of-body experience or someone might 
conflate or confuse the two. Yeah. Um, I have never had an out-of-body experience. I actually was at the Monroe Institute, um, and one of the things they did during their gateway program was encourage people to, and other people did, did have them. It's like I understand kind of what they are. In terms of bringing back information, as far as I know, it's never been demonstrated that it's any better um, or even as good as what would be the more classical remote viewing. I mean, I think that would be great. I would love to work with people who want to get in an out-of-body state and have them have the task of going to a specific place, you know, like our target, mm -hmm. and bring back information. But I've never seen any data on that. And so the issue is, is it just as good? Does it work? Um, I know people are experiencing things, but can they experience something on purpose? Mm -hmm. And um, I've been asked about lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. You know, I know lucid dreams are real. Can a person purposefully go to a target that a tasker would specify? And I've never seen any data on whether or not that would be valuable in terms of the kind of applications that remote viewing and associative remote viewing uses. So that's as much as I know about it. I mean, I those phenomenon are real, but whether, you know, I use this word purposeful, and that's a big difference. So much of precognition, um, visions, clairvoyance is done sort of accidentally, and that's what's new. And I think this is going to lead actually to a consciousness paradigm shift, is the fact that we're now finding you can get valuable information on purpose. I love that. And, you know, just to compare that to lucid dreaming, what you're describing, the difference between just dreaming where you're just an, an observer and it's you're going with the flow and it's the discombobulated storyline that makes no sense versus lucid dreaming where you take control with a purpose and you sort of become the producer director of your own movie, if you will. This is what you're talking about with being able to control the remote viewing or the other precognition experience right so rather than it just happening to you you get to dictate this is how we're going to design it and direct it that, that's exactly right and in the lucid dreaming case you know usually people lucid dream and they have a fun time and they can correct direct things but now can they direct things to tomorrow mm -hmm. what they're going to see when they get feedback and I just don't know. I mean, I think it would be great to have lucid dreamers and please come to applypreco.com <laughs> as a lucid dreamer and let's get some data. I would love to do that. Outstanding. Now, I always tell people, Marty, that everyone has psychic ability. Not everyone is going to be a psychic genius. You know, not everyone's going to be the Mozart or Picasso of the psychic world, but everyone has the ability and can work to hone those skills. Who is a good candidate to be a strong remote viewer? What do you look for in someone? They've actually done studies on that. And it turns out the number one characteristic, which is quite interesting, is meditators. Mm. Um, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Because what do the meditators do? They get quiet. They get rid of the thoughts of the day. They get rid of the intellect. And they try to get to a very, very quiet space where they're open to listening to what? Their subconscious, their submerged consciousness that is deep and close to this 
spirit, non-physical world, let's call it, to, to that world. And so meditators um, seem to be um, sort of naturally inclined to do that. But guess what? In remote viewing, just as in associative remote viewing, the first step is we teach everybody to do what's called cool down, which is basically a meditation to get rid of their thoughts and um, whatever is going on in their in their everyday life and to get really into generating a transcript which could then be used um, to, to do analysis and judging on. Very good, very good. Now I know, generally speaking, with remote viewing, they have different levels that they address. In your program for applied precognition, do you also have various levels? You know, as I said, we have um, viewers from all different aspects. CRV, where in a remote viewing, where they're trying to find a missing person or something hidden, like in the military days, which they did quite well, totally hidden, they might generate 20, 30 pages. And we still have some people that like to do that because it helps hone their skills. But we have other people who can get down on one piece of paper enough to distinguish between two targets. You see, if you're doing associative remote viewing and you know that there are two very different potential outcomes and potential targets out there, you don't need to have a 15-page one. It's not as critical as going after a missing person. And so I would say most of our people um, – are doing one or two page transcripts, but some, because they still want to hone their skills in more detail, will give a more detailed description. The viewer is in charge and they can do what they wish in terms of our programs. I like that. So there aren't any preconceived boxes that limit them. This is just based on their own experiences and their limitless connection and how they interpret it. Uh, yes, you've probably heard of Ingo Swan. Yes. He was one of the first guys that worked with those, Hal Pudoff and Russ Targ, at um, SRI. And the scientists there had their preconceived notions of what should be done, and they originally set up protocols for him. And he basically said, guys, this isn't working right. <laughs> you need to let me show you what to do. Mm -hmm. And he basically said way back then in the, in the 70s, early 1970s, let the viewer be in charge. Let the viewer take responsibility for the viewing. Very and good. that's one of the key things that all of the remote viewers now really take to heart. Now, generally speaking, Marty, how long does it take someone? Let's say you have someone come in. They're brand new. They may or may not have been playing around with this on their own. How long does it take someone to reach a level of proficiency in remote viewing or applied precognition? Well, you know, that's a general question. I can give you a general answer. Um, we feel that a person needs to do probably 25 sessions and by then, you will know because we keep data on the number of hits, the number of misses, the number of passes. See, that's the beauty of associative remote viewing. Every transcript leads to a hit, miss, or a pass um, based on whether the judge thinks there's a really good match to the two possible choices. But by 25 transcripts 
um, not only uh, are you relatively proficient at doing this, you are proficient at doing um, doing the protocol. Oh, wait, let me. I'm sorry. Let me turn this off. You're um, proficient at doing the protocol after just a few of these, but you now have data so that you can continue to learn and get more and more proficient. But we can measure their proficiency generally by 15, 20, 25. They will have now a hit rate um, compared to the average of 50. Typically, um, um, you know, if they're devoted to this and, and learning, they'll be up at around 60%, 55, 60, 65%. Now, if they get up to 65%, we have programs where there's a related institute that will actually fund them to do wagering as partners with this institute. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So that that makes sense if they if they meet a certain level of consistent proficiency then they could go into sort of like graduate school <laughs> for applied precognition so to speak. Uh, I, I, no, that's exactly right. They're they're now considered. Remember, keeping data is so key to all of this, mm -hmm. both for their learning, and for someone like this Applied Precognition Project Institute to say, you know what? Let's become partners. Nice. Let's apply this to financial markets, mm -hmm. and we'll give you half of the profits, and they don't have to put up any money. Very good. Now, I'm going to change. Uh, I'm going to change tack here just as we okay. get to this part because. There are people who, as you mentioned earlier, had had a lot of concerns about it. Um, and, and I want to take the religious aspect out of it, you know, all that stuff. It's of the devil and all that. I, we, mm -hmm. We're going to throw that out because that's just, you know, fear. However, mm -hmm. when we look at it scientifically, are there any dangers to participating in applied precognition or remote viewing? You know... I've never, I've never seen any, but, um, and and maybe that's because in associative remote viewing they don't tend to go as deep. I have heard that some people, if for example they're trying to find a murderer or someone like that, where that's their tasking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so remember that again is the much much heavier type of tasking, and they're trying to get into that person's mind and what's going on. Mm -hmm. That it's important to do what's called detoxing afterwards, and as long as you do that, apparently it's okay. But I suppose under those extreme conditions, I could see where where it may potentially be a problem if you're so hooked up with someone whose mind is really screwed up, mm -hmm. um, a murder or something like that, and you get into those shoes, um, I could see where that might that might cause problems. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm certainly not going to rule it out, yeah. Now, have you ever come across anyone who simply cannot remote view no matter how hard they try or how much training they, they go through? Um... Well, you know, that's an interesting question because it's hard to know the answer to that because they never stay that long. I happen to believe everybody can get up to at least the 55% level, virtually everybody. But 
notice that means you're missing 45% of the time. And a lot of people um, will just stop and they'll say just what you said, hey, I can't do this. <laughs> it's impossible. Um, and they'll leave. Mm -hmm. um, and so people tend to leave. I believe this, this just is a natural talent. Let me point out one other thing that I think you'll find quite interesting. There are people who come to us and they are absolutely psychic, but in the negative way. They will get, instead of going for like, you know, we love to see 65%, 70%, we have some people in groups that are at 75%, and we're actually shooting and have publicly stated this, to have people who will get up to 80% regularly to stay up there. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of our first goal. Not 100%, mm -hmm. just, I don't know about that, 80%, but that's really good. But we, I had a person who was down at 30%. And I talked to him about it, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And he thought about that, and he said, you know, I really don't want you to do that. I am a, um, a contrary person, and I know it. And I think <laughs> my subconscious has been doing the opposite on purpose, and I'm going to switch. And you know what? He did. The very next thing, he turned around and went back up to 60 65%. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. It's all it's all psychological, yeah, Angela. Yeah, I was I was picking up on that when you were talking about that because I um, I've had some of those experiences myself where I've realized I'm my mind is playing tricks on me and I and it's exactly what you just described where I'd say, well, I would normally go left, but you know what? It's contrary, so I'm going to go right, and that was the answer. So, <laughs> yeah, amazing. Now on your website, you talk about uh, I'm going to quote you here. In quantum mechanics, the primary model function is usually expressed with the Greek letter psi, which is a probabilistic complex wave function that vibrates with a real part and an imaginary part. The need for an imaginary part or an equivalent matrix formulation hints at the need for dimensions of ideas, emotions, and other non-space time aspects of reality. Let's break that down for our listeners. I find that so fascinating. And this is the crux, I believe, of what you're doing. So when we talk about the probabilistic complex wave function, vibrating real part, imaginary part, let's let's get dive into that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was a mouthful, isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, let's explain what the imaginary part is. Um, people understand square root. The square root of four is two, right? Because right. two times two equals four. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this question. What's the square root of minus one? Mm. How do you come up with any number when multiplied by itself will give you a negative number, mm -hmm. right? When you square anything, if I square a negative number, I still get a positive number. Mm -hmm. Well, Imaginary numbers are like that. There's the symbol I, which is that which when you square, you get minus one. So that's what they mean by the imaginary part. Now, guess what? Can you understand that in an intellectual way? Absolutely. The mathematics is great, but you can't understand it. So – Well, it turns – Go ahead. Turns out quantum mechanics – one of the very first formulations of quantum mechanics, when they write out those equations, uses the symbol I. And quantum mechanics, and very much, I think, for that reason, 
is something which um, uh, Feynman, Richard Feynman, a Nobel laureate in quantum mechanics, said nobody really understands quantum mechanics. Um, it works. You can make predictions with it because when you make a prediction, you get rid of the I by coming up with what's called just the real part. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, you can't understand it. Now, that is nevertheless the best model of our world, our universe that we have is quantum mechanics with this I in it. And all of that is what leads many of us who sort of contemplate this to say, you know what, there's a lot deeper stuff going on mm -hmm. than just the physical world. Mm -hmm. And that then leads to this universal collective consciousness, leads to emotions being the things which cause what are called quantum entanglements. In the physical world, there's something called non-locality, where you can have particles instantly connected even though they're on opposite sides of you know, the universe, whatever that means. But long distance away, you tweak one, the other one knows about it. But in our world, what we see is emotion um, helps connect, helps entangle the remote viewing session with the feedback session. Mm -hmm. You want to light those up. You want to entangle those with emotions. You know, and it's interesting because when I'm, when I'm looking at this and I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm looking at the real part and the imaginary part, what I'm using in my mind as an analogy, the real part being the left hemisphere of the brain being the logical analytical side and the imaginary part being the right side of the brain where it is the emotion and, and the feeling and, and all of these sorts of um, ethereal kind of ideas. And so being able to take those two, the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, real part and imaginary part, and have them in its own entanglement with the corpus callosum, then you have this connection ultimately where you're making that, uh, you're connecting to, to what Jung calls the collective unconscious or what you call the collective con uh, con uh, consciousness, right? The universe of collective the consciousness. universe of collective consciousness. UCC, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that analogy. That's good. That's good. Left and right brain. Uh, in quantum mechanics, there's something they call psi and then uh, psi with a, an asterisk above it. And one is the real part plus the imaginary. The other is the real part minus the imaginary. Mm. And the final result happens to be the product, which always turns out to be a real number. So that's how you can get real predictions. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was a very interesting analogy. I like that. Now, let's talk about the winning entanglement protocol. What is that? How does it work? How do you apply it? Okay. It is a type of associative remote viewing that is totally online. Um, the beautiful part ab about the Internet is people from all over the world can be part of the app project. Uh, and, in fact, they are. We're certainly international. Um what the winning entanglement protocol does, it allows you to get your tasking online. It allows you to upload your transcript so it can be judged independently or you can judge it yourself. And it allows you to get your feedback, these pictures, which are in – we have 800 
pre-chosen pairs of pictures and they're chosen randomly, totally blind. And in fact, they're even chosen after your transcript has been uploaded. <laughs> so we can, I know it's wonderful. We can guarantee there's precognition going on and nothing else because nobody, uh, not even the computer, <laughs> knows what it is until after the prediction has actually been made. That's a control. Um, nice. And that's a control. Yes. And in winning entanglements, um, um, well, it's just one of the – there are other protocols that people are doing uh, with different groups, but this is a very specific one uh, which um, you know we certainly like, and there are several groups that are using it. But we have other groups that are using more classical types where people email in their transcripts as opposed to up uploading it. Um, and we even have some groups that don't use ARV. Just so you know, when we say Applied Precognition Project, we have groups that use um, dowsing and uh, other approaches, and they are forced to keep data too. The key thing is we want data so that we can distinguish people who are good at this and people who aren't. Outstanding. That's what I love about what you do right there. It is truly the scientific study of some of these phenomena. I love that. Now, here's something I also love that is just, I just get a kick out of it, and I'll tell you why. You, you teach financial and sports precognitive application workshops. And, you know, right. it's hilarious because a lot of psychics will say, you can't use your abilities to guess the stock market or lottery numbers or some such. But you, in fact, are teaching workshops on how to do just that. Uh, that's that's exactly right. And in June, June thirteenth to sixteenth in Las Vegas, we're doing that. And the theme is consciousness is fundamental, with the fun being emphasized <laughs> with capital letters. And precognition is health, wealth, and wisdom. And hey, look, even psychics need to eat, right? We, <laughs> right. Um, and. It's very clear to me that this is doable because we're doing it. We have, we have people doing it now all the time, more and more, and we want to encourage it. Look, the universe the universe of consciousness is not flat. That's another one of the one-liners I love. Mm -hmm. You know, the world of consciousness is not flat, and it allows precognition, so it's out there to be applied, and that is what we're all about. Wonderful. And this conference that you have coming up in June in Las Vegas, some of the presenters at this conference, they include you, Dean Radden, Joe McMonagall, Jeffrey Mishlove, Ed May, and John Peterson. Very exciting. Tell us more about how people can sign up for that conference, if they're interested in attending, any other details that they might need to know. Uh, the main thing, if they go to appliedprecog.com, our website, Right there, there's a link to get all the information about the conference, the agenda, more details on these great speakers. And you're right. These are the leaders in this whole field of remote viewing. Joe McMonagall, as you know, is probably the number one remote mm -hmm. viewer out there. Ed May was a head of the Stargate program at Stanford Research Institute. So he was the one who worked with them. Dean Radin is the guy who wrote the book Conscious Universe. Um, so these guys, uh, Jeff Mishloff happens to be the only person with a degree, in par a PhD degree in parapsychology. Um, anyway, um, go to www.appliedprecog.com 
and they'll be able to get all the details. Outstanding. And Marty, for those who have been listening to our show tonight, and they are fired up and they are excited, and they want to learn more about your Applied Precognition Project, Remote Viewing, Applied Precognition, how can they best reach out to you? I'm happy to give out my email address. It is marty, M-A-R-T-Y, at P as in physics, dash I as in intuition, dash A as in applications, dot com. Excellent. So they can contact me directly or from the website, there is a very clear contact form so they can contact that way as, contact us that way as well. Outstanding. And Marty, I just want to thank you again for taking time tonight to join us and share this information. I know my mind is blown. I'm excited. I'm fired up. I'm going to be looking more into what you're doing more so than I already have. Just really excited about the work you're doing. And uh, I wish you lots of luck with your conference in June. That sounds so exciting. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Angela. And Transpersonal Radio listeners, I would encourage you to visit Marty's website and uh, really check out what they're doing with the Applied Precognition Project. Reach out to him at his email, and and uh, if you can, uh, find the time to attend the conference in Las Vegas in June. Absolutely will be worth your time. You will learn a ton of information. You will probably be able to learn so much about remote viewing, be able to do it before you even leave over the time that you're there. I will make sure to put the links on my website, transpersonalradio.com, as always, in the show notes, so you'll be able to link to Marty's information straight from there if you are interested in following up with him and the projects they are doing. And Get involved in what they're doing. If you are interested in becoming involved as a remote viewer, absolutely do that. And, you know, find out how you can donate or volunteer or help with what they're doing as well, because this is something that truly can change the entire world. I am so excited about what they're doing. And so, again, check out what they're doing. And as always, thank you for listening. And until next week, we will talk to you then. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trans- Transpersonal Radio. If you'd like to suggest a future, future topic or be a guest, visit transpersonalradio.com. Call the hotline at 619-800-6057 or, or like our page, facebook.com slash transpersonalradio.